Friends, I am very glad to be back here. I, uh, it occurred to me that perhaps uh, Pastor Sherritt, whom I've known longer than many of you, perhaps he didn't confer with you before inviting me to come for three weeks in a row. <laughs> uh, I'm grateful to be here. Uh, I do not get very many opportunities to preach, um, although I'm a teaching elder in the PCA. Um, let me pray uh, for us again uh, as we approach this passage of Scripture. Father, we would ask this morning for Pentecostal hearing and speaking. We bless you for your rich, loving purpose in making yourself and your purposes known in this world. It is an awesome thing to consider that you would overcome the boundary of language at at the Feast of Pentecost that those who had come might hear. There are so many boundaries in our lives to hearing. May my voice, my phrases, anything about me not be a hindrance. And may there be no hindrance in these, your children's lives. We would hear from you. We need to hear from you. Do this in order that your purposes in and through us in this world to bring healing to the nations might happen. For your honor and glory we ask it. Amen. Friends, for the next three weeks we're going to be looking uh, together. I need to stay close, I think. Uh, For the next three weeks we're going to be looking together at three uh, narratives at the end of Peter's, uh, at the end of the gospel accounts of Peter's life. Uh, now, these aren't anywhere near the end of his life, but they're, the, they're the, like the last three significant narratives about Peter. This is some material that I've been uh, ruminating on, endeavoring to help students to grow. Uh, in, in Peter's life and the stories around it, we have the most remarkable and intimate look at a person in their own journey of faith. I mean, it's, it's really pretty extraordinary. Uh, it's one of the tests that says that the scriptures must be true because these are not nice stories about Peter. You wouldn't want these things written about you. But God has seen fit for your good, for my good, for the good of the world to tell these stories, to keep them visible for us. There are many places in Scripture where there are teachings on prayer. There are, of course, the, 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 the one that comes first to everyone's mind when the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray, and then we're going to do that together when we say the Lord's Prayer. Every week, right? We say that. Lord, teach us to pray. And there are many other passages that teach us about prayer, and this is one of them. I would note that, I would observe that, uh, 
many, many, many of these passages are given to us in the explicit context of trials. There are negative examples of prayer. There are positive examples of prayer. Um, and the trials that are often in view, when trials are in view, are not only our past trials, but they might be our current trials. They might be our future trials. They're sometimes ongoing trials. Some of you may be like some of the characters in Scripture where you're in a trial that's been going on for 15 years. And I'm confident that the shape of your prayer has changed during that time. We pray with a more earnest and trusting heart by God's design as the trial moves along. But sometimes we cease to trust him and we move in another direction. We often, play, we often pray, uh, we, we ask others, please pray for a good result from this test. I'm going to the doctor. Please pray for a good result from my test. Please pray for healing. People ask for prayer for the darndest of things. I was told by a young man that he and his girlfriend, before they had sex together, prayed that she wouldn't get pregnant. You may have prayed something like that. Is this how we are to pray? How do we know if we're praying for our will or for God's will? Who of us would want to realize, who who of us would even want to pray against God's will? Yet we pray, Jesus help me to not do this. Jesus save me from this. We often will glibly say, Father, I know that you work all things together for good. But I really prefer that you make this work out good. We do. I know we do. I know that I do. Tell you two brief stories about that passage from Romans 8. Um, About six years ago, I received news, myself and my uh, two of my sisters received news, as did my dad, that my oldest sister, we received this news as if it was a news report. We didn't receive it from my sister, my oldest sister. We received it about her through a third party who had seen it on the news. We received news that she had, my oldest sister had killed her husband and then had taken her own life. And I immediately thought, Father, I believe that you work all things together for good, but I don't have any idea how you're going to do it. Help me to pray. Um, In a way that was sure to bring God's glory, visible, and it was such a profound help in my own and my dad's life, uh, the turmoil around that produced a conversation between me and my dad that has forever changed for good our relationship. Now, I don't know what to make of what it all meant for uh, her husband's father or family. These things are mysterious, aren't they? How does God work it all together for good? for us who have such a limited view. A second piece of picture of this happened 
uh, Halloween night this year. Uh, a lot of students from Skidmore uh, walk off campus about a mile away to a house, and there's a big drinking party there. It happens a lot. On this particular evening, a lot of students were walking back. I expect that they were intoxicated. They were walking back from the party on a rural road. It's the only way back to campus. And another intoxicated person in a car came around the corner and hit three young men, three freshman guys, killed one, and the other two are still in intensive care in Albany Medical Center. Father, I believe that you work all things together for good. Our trials are real, and how will we engage with God? Suppose for a moment that his will is the trial. How often do we pray that way? I think that more often in my own life, I'm not going to put this on you, but this is likely true for many of you. So often in our own life, in a Peter-ishly way, we assert our will over and against God's in the way that we pray. It, is, it remains a question of whether it is my will or thy will. Just imagine it for a moment, what it must be like from God's perspective when you pray that way, when I pray that way, when we demonstrate to him no appetite whatsoever for him or his will because we want our way. We pray and we work for our way. The idea of trusting him doesn't really show up. It looks like trusting him because we're praying. <laughs> but we're basically just telling him what we want. Now there is a place for telling him what you want, right? Tell him the desires of your heart. But somehow the biblical idea of surrender and yielding to him must be present in us. Let me give us the background. for. We're going to be focusing on verses 31 to 34. Let me give us the background and sort of create the setting for us uh, for what we're going to sit down in. It's the upper room. It's the time of the Passover. And as we heard, as, as we will remember from just before this passage begins, it's the place where Jesus... Get, it's the Last Supper. It's the place where Jesus gives himself to them. Where he says, I'm going to give myself to you. My body, my blood. Well, right on the heels of that, he makes the prediction, after this very, very great thing, this great and good thing, he makes the prediction that one of you, one of these 12, is going to betray me. So the, the narrative goes, the story, the, 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 the scene goes from this incredibly great thing to this grim thing. And the next thing we see is that the disciples 
are then sort of talking among themselves, who would do such a thing? Who would do such a thing? I mean, that's like the worst thing ever. And then, just like that, the conversation turns again, and then they are talking among themselves about which one of them is the greatest. Part of me wants to laugh at this narrative. It's so it's, it's an insane conversation, but I've been in conversations like this. I used to work in resort hotel management, and I hired primarily uh, on purpose. I'd probably get fired for this now, but I hired Christians because I expected them to be better at serving, which is what a front desk clerk does. They serve. <laughs> they ask you what you need, and then they do whatever is, it takes so that you can get it. Um, but one day when there wasn't much else going on, myself, I I and some of my colleagues were having a conversation together about who we thought at the Boar's Head Inn, the name of the hotel, who we thought was the least likely to come to faith. What kind of a conversation is that? It's like this, right? Who's the worst? Who's the best? Jesus has been talking about giving himself and one will deny and they're talking about who is going to be the greatest. It's an insane moment. And into this, Jesus speaks about leadership and servanthood. And he says, be like me. And then the story turns again. And Jesus says, there is a trial coming. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed that your faith may not fail and that when you return, you'll strengthen the brothers. We were doing a Bible study on campus recently. Um, uh, imagine the setting. We're, uh, I'm, I'm on Union College's campus and uh, when, we, when we do a Bible study, whoever comes, comes. Some are believers, some are not yet. Some come as they're seeking, but they're drawn for some reason. And we're uh, meeting during what's called common lunch. Um, and it is what it means. It's common lunch. There are no classes, and so everybody crashes into the dining center, and it's very crowded, but we got there early, got a table, extended it a little bit. We've got about eight people gathered around in what's called the pit in Dutch. And it's a loud area, which is great for doing a Bible study because if you want to hear, everybody is physically leaning forward around the table. Our heads are almost touching each other. And I asked these students, what, is it, what does this mean to sift as wheat? Blank stairs. Blank stairs. What does it mean to sift as wheat? Uh, now, I, I thought that they probably wouldn't have an answer, so I had, an, I had another question in my pocket. And so I said, uh, okay, well, what do you think it means? Uh, right, that's a very, very dangerous question. What do you think it means? And then I refined it a little bit, which I think is an important question. What does it feel like it means? Now, for some of you, that's an even more dangerous question. <laughs> but the use of image or metaphor it has all kinds of ways of getting into you, right? So when Jesus uses a word picture, sift as wheat, 
surely it has some kind of engagement internally for us. So I said, what, do you th- what does it feel like it means? And Marion Chi, who is still seeking Christ, I believe she's regenerate, but she, does, she isn't owning it publicly yet, but she responded just immediately. What does it feel like it means? And she said, it feels like Satan wants to mess with them. Satan wants to mess with them. I thought, this is spirit-given intuition. It was really an extraordinary moment. It's very similar to the passage that uh, Pastor Sherritt picked. I'm very thankful for that from Job chapter 1. Where Satan, the, the hinderer, says, Job only loves you because you protect him. Remove your protection and watch what happens. Satan wanted to sift Job to prove that Job wasn't actually faithful, that he didn't actually have a loyal heart. I think that that's the kernel of what he's asking here regarding Peter. And then Jesus says, so the first piece in verse 31 is a plural you. Some of you may have an older NIV uh, Bible. I, I don't know what Bible you're reading, but in some of your Bibles, it'll just say the word you. Satan has asked to sift you. Um, it actually says Satan has asked to sift all y'all. It's a, it's a plural you. He speaks to Simon the leader, and he says, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But then it narrows down in verses 32 and following, and Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, you, Simon. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And that is, in and of itself, the teaching on prayer. How does Jesus pray in trial? Where and when and why does sifting happen? How does a sifter even work? Think what happens in the kitchen. You all, we, I think that probably everybody, maybe even the children, know what a sifter is. It's this little metal uh, sleeve, and inside it there's a screen And then there's a handle that has a hard wire on it, right? And you turn the wire, you turn the handle, and the wire crosses over the screen again and again. And you put things into it that can be either blended or separated. There's friction that takes place. Imagine if you were one of the grains of wheat, and that wire comes grinding across that screen, it would probably be uncomfortable. Okay? It separates things. It lets the good stuff go through, or it even sort of pulverizes some things that are clotted together, and it helps those things to go through, and it keeps some other things out. That's probably the, uh, not exactly the same Im- image as threshing, but it's, it's the same image in, I mean, in threshing. You keep the the big stuff, and you let the little stuff go away. But it's the same idea. 
It's a, a separating thing. You see, Satan wants to separate you from the purposes of God in your life and for your life in the world. He wants to grind you down. He wants to mess with you. That's why it happens. That's why it happens from Satan's perspective. Of course, from God's perspective, it's the purifying aspect, which is also separating. When does it happen? Well, it it happens all the time. Some of you may be experiencing it right now in the sermon because my cadence isn't exactly what you're used to. Or my accent. You may be thinking, golly, this is grinding. (laughs) Most often, sifting happens where you are weak, where you are vulnerable. And it becomes, in God's purposes, an opportunity to believe. It becomes, in Satan's purposes, an opportunity to believe. Because sifting is a place of temptation. If sifting is the trial, that is where temptation happens, right? And temptation is always, always, always an opportunity to believe. To believe that God is good or to decide that he isn't. Think about it in the context of prayer. Forgive me, I don't want to hurt any of you. If you have a pending medical test and your spouse wants you to recover, But this is one of those places where it shows up. The temptation is to believe that the outcome, being good, must be God's will. You actually will find yourself desiring the outcome more than you desire God. That cannot be God's will. It's not possible. We are made for him, not for outcomes. There are worse things than dying. I can say that probably glibly. Forgive me. Sifting is a dangerous time. Now we all know what happens. We all know what happens as a result of this prayer. Jesus prays that his faith may not fail. And Peter denies him three times. What are we to learn from Peter's denials? How are we to how are we to put Peter's denials and Jesus' prayer together? How is Peter's denial not faith? failing. Think about the really big stuff in your life. Sifting is an opportunity for you to experience condemnation. You've done something. Something big. And the thought occurs to you, God will never 
forgive me. Someone says to you, God will never forgive you. My wife will never forgive me. The church will never forgive me. I don't know what scale you guys have, but I cannot imagine that denying Jesus in public three times with Jesus right across the courtyard cannot be one of the really big ones. In practical terms, it is unforgivable in the church to do things like that. I will guess, because of the number of people in the room, I will guess that someone here, someone's here, has done something big. And perhaps you have been accepted back in the body but you will never, ever, ever be trusted again. Friends, I unfortunately speak from a lot of personal experience around this, not in other people's lives, in my own, wondering if I would ever be forgiven. I resigned from the pastorate, um, the one pastorate that I held, with no notice In 1996, up in Queensbury, New York, part of this presbytery, I resigned with no notice. And for four years, I had a recurring daydream of God dusting his hands of me, saying, I am done with you. Jesus has prayed for Peter. I think that the teaching here is that somehow... Peter's faith has not failed. Think about how it happens. Think about about the whole thing from Peter's perspective. The temptation, the fear, the options. He's he's asking himself, you know, he's there and there's, there's all the Roman guards, and he's thinking to himself, if I say, if I say this, this will happen. If I say this, if I don't say this, this will happen. It's much like the scene in Les Mis, Les Miserables, where Jean Valjean is uh, found. He's been under a pseudonym. He's, he's hiding in public, in full view, under another name. And um, Javert, the policeman who has been hunting him, it's like, like it's Javert's life mission to find him. He finds him, but he doesn't know that it's him, and he's telling him the story about a man that he caught and Jean Valjean, you, you, you hear him in one of the songs that he sings. He, he's asking the same questions. He says, if I speak, if I, if I tell him who I am, if I speak, I am condemned. But if I stay silent, I am damned. What is Peter going through? but he makes a decision. It's what we do in temptation, right? You make a decision, and then you act. Peter stays silent. He doesn't own Jesus. I don't know the man. He's angry. And yet somehow, his faith is not failing. 
how can that be? How will you make sense of that? You see, when we come under condemnation or under comment, (laughs) people are talking about you because of what you did. When we come under that, all of our experience is fail. It's the only experience that you can even see. It's the air around you. Ask God for his perspective. Okay? Ask God, is my sin bigger than Jesus' blood? I think we're talking practically, right? Is my sin bigger than Jesus' blood? This is a remarkable, remarkable story. You see, Jesus knows what's going to happen. We believe that theoretically, right? But I mean, in the story, he knows what's going to happen. He says, when you return, which means you're about to sin. But I'm praying that your faith won't fail. When you return, is he just being optimistic or is this the prediction of the God who knows? When we say that, I think that we're being optimistic. We're, 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 we're begging God to help our brother or sister return. Jesus is saying, he's declaring, when you return. When you turn again, he says actually, when you turn again, as if you're going to turn away from me, but when you turn again, when you turn back. At the very least, somehow we're being taught that sin does not mean that your faith has failed. Your sin does not mean that your faith has failed. Practically, though, that's what Jesus says. But practically, when you return, the way that we say it in church, when you return, you can sit in the back pew. When you return, you might need to go to another church. Imagine if Jesus has said, Peter, when you return, you'll need to find another fellowship. He says, when you return, strengthen the brothers. Now, I'm going to jump ahead for a second. What might that mean, right? That does not sound like, I've got a little job for you. God's whole way of engaging with our sin is so much. It's it's about salvation. It's, It's not the way we think about it. How great is the love of God. How great is God's capacity to restore. You see, this is not some abstract theological conversation for Peter or for Jesus. This is the person who is about to be denied and then betrayed and then die. 
This is a personal conversation. In Hebrews, when it says, he was made like us, (laughs) that is meant to encourage you that he knows. And in a picture like this, surely we see Jesus knows. He knows what it's like to be sinned against. And it's the person who is sinned against. The person who has just said, I am giving you my life, my body and my blood. It's that person who says, your sin is not greater than me or my life or my love. A few practical thoughts. More practical thoughts. How do we engage with the sifted? How do we engage with a brother or sister or maybe a group of people? How do do we engage with them who are being sifted? Surely, it will help you to remember that trial is not equal to sin and that sin does not necessarily equal faith failing, right? But just, they, they had, the sifting may not even be to sin yet. It's just the trial. Can you take Jesus' words and say them to each other? When you return, get back in the saddle. When you return, come back to meaningful, useful service in the body. Can you say that? Can we, can we, can we do what Jesus is doing? Can we say, brother, I am confident that God is at work and that this great difficulty is meant to sharpen you There's a scene in um, a little tiny book called A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. Very, very small book. It's about his wife's death. And he is, it's quite a little book. It's, It's like an unedited look into a person's heart. And he is ranting at times in prayer, as, and that's what's written here. And he says in this one scene, his wife has died a horrible death with cancer, and he says, why did you have to grind her down on your wheel? So, you know, it's, a, it's a picture of a grinding wheel. And his, his experience was that God was grinding his wife down. Right? Been there, right? Either you're the one being ground down or you're watching someone that you care about. It's horrible. And then God has given him eyes of faith. And that's in one chapter. And then just like three pages later, he's revisiting the same image. And he says, now I understand. I picture her as a sword. A right Jerusalem blade. It's a quote from Pilgrim's Progress. I picture her as a sword, a right Jerusalem blade, and you heft it, and you make lightnings in the sky. (sighs) 
can we begin to believe that God is at work in such a place? Imagine the usefulness that you will be to God or that your friend will be to God when they return. Peter's not going to have a theoretical acquaintance with forgiveness after this. Two things very quickly. And I probably don't even need to say this, but don't pray to avoid trials. Ask God, what are you trying to teach us through this trial? That is a submissive prayer, right? I'm not protesting. I'm, a- I'm asking God to help me to be alert because I believe that his will is better than my will. You see, he knows, and this is the last piece, he knows the future. We want to make the future. He already knows the future. And he wants to lead us, a congregation, individuals. He wants to lead us into the future. His future purposes in your marriages, in your parenting, his future purposes in your community at work. Let's engage with God, okay? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, I confess that I am frightened by the uncertainty that these things speak. Help your people to trust you. Help us to be more uh, eager to learn from you than to have our way. Help help us to delight in it. uh, Remind us of your goodness. I ask for these brothers and sisters that where there is any need for encouragement, you would gather others around them to encourage them. If there's a need for conviction of some new yielding to you, come Holy Spirit and do your good work. For your honor we ask it. Amen.